This morning's text, I think, is, is full of surprises for us. It begins with a surprising question from a character who you wouldn't expect that question to come from. I think the response from Jesus is a bit surprising. And then the response from those standing by is once again surprising. I think there is a overall or a little bit of shock and surprise in how Luke tells his story. And yet if you scratch at the surface just the littlest of bit, I think you begin to very quickly see yourself to be able to be in each of these characters' positions. That while it might seem surprising right at first, a little digging and you realize that could easily be me. I probably have asked that question. That probably could be me in those circumstances. If you remember where we've been in Luke, Luke is writing, Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That in and of itself is surprising because it's not what people expected. It's not being built how they thought it would be. Jesus is not the kind of king that they thought he would be. But as we move back even further in Luke, we see the purpose of, of, of this book is that Luke would write such an account that we could have certainty concerning Jesus. You see it in the image behind me, the gospel of certainty. As he gives a careful account of those who have, have seen what's happened and he places it before us, he wants to give us confidence in the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. He wants us to have confidence in who Christ is and what he has done. And I think this text this morning serves us in that way that when we come to a point in our life where our confidence, our certainty, our assurance is shaken and who Christ is and what He is doing, this text serves us well to give us certainty in that gospel. We're getting reacquainted with John the Baptist this morning. If we can remember, we encounter John the Baptist right at the beginning of Luke in chapter 1. We see him again in Luke chapter 3 and now we see him briefly in Luke chapter 7. A little bit to catch us up on John the Baptist, which will serve us well as we come to the beginning of this text. If you remember the end of the Old Testament, there is one prophesied who is coming, who will be the herald, who will declare the way, come before Jesus Christ. In Malachi, the very last verses of the Old Testament, verse, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last words of the Old Testament, a promise of one who is coming to declare the coming day of the Lord. 400 years of silence. And then in Luke chapter 1, you have this declaration as the angel visits Zechariah and starts to say, there is one who is coming. God breaks into the silence and you start to see, is this the one? The one awaited for, the one prophesied. In Luke chapter 1, then you read of John the Baptist's birth. Elizabeth, a lady unable to have children, now past the age where that's even uh, imaginable for her. And the Lord once again visits and says, I'm going to give you a child who will be John. And you see kind of the miraculous that, that surrounds his birth. Elizabeth, a relative of the Virgin Mary, they encounter one another again in chapter 1. And as, as Mary comes before Elizabeth, you have John now being carried in the womb of Elizabeth, Jesus in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
And John, filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, even in the womb, leaps at the presence of Jesus. And you begin to see this one is set apart in a special way for ministry, preparing the people of God for the coming of Christ. We move on then to chapter 3. Chapter 2 then moves to Jesus and His birth. Chapter 3 we come, and now we start to see John the Baptist in his ministry. And we have this now this Elijah-like prophet declaring, declaring repentance. Believe, repent, the coming of Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God is coming. And everything about him screams this Elijah-like prophet. His message, you remember his dress, what he eats, where he lives in the wilderness, the baptism that he offers, everything is a call for the people to forsake the materialistic, hedonistic way they have been pursuing and to turn back to Jesus Christ, to repent and to believe the one who is coming. Everything about his message screams that. And his message of repentance continues to to grow and to strengthen you want to flip back to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, to give you a taste of the message of John the Baptist. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to him to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with your repentance, similar to what we've heard from Jesus lately. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A bold, fiery message of repentance to the people of God. You come to one of the final scenes that we see John the Baptist, and that is when Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And in humility, Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and uniquely ordains, inaugurates His ministry that He can head forward now into His wilderness temptation to be obedient for us and then into His public ministry. And really, at that moment, a couple things happen that begin to set the table for our text this morning. At that moment... There starts to some confusion among the people. The disciples have followed John. He's built up quite a following. Crowds are flocking to him to come hear him speak. And now Jesus' star starts to shine brightly. And people begin to go to him, not necessarily in faith, but just in amazement and wonder. And there are some confusion. Should we be following John? Should we be following Jesus? And John pushes people as hard as he can away from himself to Jesus. You remember, he says, the one coming after me. He will offer a baptism with the Holy Spirit, with fire, whose strap, whose sandal of his strap, I'm un strap of his sandal, I am unworthy to untie. And John does quickly begin to fade into obscurity. His message in John, if you remember that, he must increase, but I must decrease, referring to Jesus. And so this is taking place, that Jesus, as his bursts onto the scene and people begin to come to him and to look at him, John begins to fade into the background. And then we see in John chapter 3, or Luke chapter 3 once again, that John's message of repentance ultimately lands him in some trouble. 
Look at verse 18 of John chapter 3. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod is taking as his wife Herodias, who is, from best I can understand, his sister in law and his niece. It's a messed up situation. And, Herod, and John comes before Herod and calls him to repentance on this. And Herod, we just have this comment, puts him in prison. Now history would tell us that he sent him to the dungeons of Macherius. If you just read a little bit about it, it's a, a desolate, awful, hot, Dirty place to be. It's out in the wilderness near the Dead Sea. It's not like you go there for you know, 30 days and get off after 15 days for good behavior and do some community service. That is your tomb when you go there. You either die there or you stay there until you're executed. That's the feeling. I guess it still stands today. You can go visit it and you can see kind of that dark wall where John and other prisoners would have been chained to that wall. So John, fading, losing popularity, still having some friends and disciples who come to him, finds himself now locked up in a dungeon, in a place where there is very little hope for him. The beginning of our passage in Luke chapter 7 tells that a couple disciples come to John and they give a report on what they've seen and heard, updating him on Jesus, I'm sure. Probably updating him on the, the servant of the centurion who Jesus healed, this Roman centurion who Jesus miraculously heals. Updating them on this widow in Nain who Jesus comes upon that funeral procession and he stops it in his tracks as he raises the widow's son from the dead. And so they bring this news to John, and John is not excited to hear it. And he asks this question, and I think it maybe can be a bit surprising and shocking to us when we first read it. Remember, this is John the Baptist. So he calls his disciples and he sends them to the Lord with this question, verse 19, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I mean, this is John the Baptist prophesied in the Old Testament, leaping in the womb, baptizing Jesus, ordaining him for this ministry. And just a short time later, he wants to know, are you even the one I prophesied or should I be looking for someone else? How did he get to that point? I think three things we've already made observations on, but I want to draw three specific areas that I think gets us to this point, gets John to this point, because I think we can relate with these areas. And then Jesus' response to him hopefully will be a comfort to us. First, what happened in, G, in John's life that got him to such a point where he would ask this question? I think it's simply difficulty. <laughs> It was, he was in a difficult situation. Difficulty had driven him to doubt. 
He is in prison. He is facing that level of difficulty. Secondly is despair. I think what is the difference between difficulty and despair? As I was thinking for John, difficulty is hardship. Despair is realizing this is my life now. You know, difficulty is a relationship that's hard. Despair is when that relationship ends. Difficulty is being sick. Despair is when you're diagnosed with terminal cancer. And you've got to remember, John, we tend to think, and I know we remind you of this, but I think we easily fall into that way of thinking that it's just a Bible character. You know, and this is John, and he's an amazing Bible character. He experiences the full range of emotions that we experience. He's happy, he's sad, he's lonely, he, he's confused at times. He is finite in his understanding. And on that side of the cross, he has even a, a more foggy understanding of what Jesus is doing than we do. He is under the curse. He experiences a fallen world around him. He experiences a curse from within in his own weakness and, and fragility of mind and weakness of faith. And he is suffocating right now. He is being buried in despair. He's in prison. He's going to die. He knows it. Jesus isn't doing anything. And he's in despair. And when he hears all the good things that Jesus is doing for the Roman centurion and the widow over here, it doesn't mean much to him because he's suffocating here. Difficulty, despair, and thirdly, disappointment. And here's what I mean by disappointment, is that Jesus was not who he expected him to be in the sense that he wasn't building the kingdom the way John thought he should be. This wasn't the Messiah he was expecting. Jesus wasn't working how John planned for Jesus to be working. He said a coming is one who is he's coming in the Holy Spirit and with fire. That axe laid to the root, the, the winnowing fork that's Wrath, destruction, judgment. This was a huge part of John's message. Repent. Judgment is at hand. And now he looks at Jesus and sees, yes, he's coming with the Holy Spirit and and he's performing miracles, but where is the judgment? Where is the wrath? Where is vindication on the oppressor? Because Herod seems to be fine and I'm going to die in prison. And you're healing Roman centurions and these Gentile people and rescuing them. How about your people? Why are they so oppressed still? And there's disappointment that Jesus isn't operating how John thought he was going to operate. And all of this together kind of upon John the Baptist and his question, and and my sense is, is, isn't a vindictive, bitter question, but it is just a question from someone who who is overwhelmed in life. Are you the Jesus, or should I be looking elsewhere? And before we pile on John too much, I want to just stop and think, all of us have been in one, are currently in one, or will be in one, or maybe all three of these situations. Difficulty. You face difficulty in life. Relationships are difficult. Finances are difficult. Whatever it might be, you start bumping up against difficulty. It can easily start to be that all you see in your life is that difficulty. Despair. Have you been there? Are you there? 
you realize I'm never going to have a father or a mother who loves me and cares for me. Instead, they're abusive to me. Some of you, that's your experience. The relationship I long for is done. It's ended. It's over. Someone you love is ravaged with cancer or been taken away completely. You lose a loved one. And a despair can be overwhelming and suffocating in that it's all you see. Or disappointment. I think this one is one we find ourselves in a lot. Jesus just hasn't worked how you thought he was going to. You know, I prayed about something. I thought it was the Lord's will. I followed it. And it's just not working out. Why did I go to school for 18 years if I'm not even going to be in that career? I'm given all this time in discipleship of someone, all this time in this ministry. Where is the fruitfulness? I, I knew this is what the Lord wanted me to do. Why is it not turning out well? How come there isn't fruitfulness? How come Jesus isn't working how I thought he was going to work? How is he being good and kind to me right now? And disappointment sets in. And you wouldn't like just verbalize, I'm really disappointed in Jesus right now. But that's how we feel, that I had a plan and it's not going. I, I don't understand. I'm disappointed in how Jesus was working things in my life. And in that moment, in those categories, as we find ourselves there, is a crisis of faith. And maybe not the crisis of faith where you think, I'm going to walk away from God altogether, but a crisis of faith where you are disappointed in what the Lord is doing in your life. You've lost peace, you've lost joy in life, in ministry, in whatever it is. You're unable to engage in, in worship. You're unable to in, disciple or, or give yourself towards, to anyone else and any other need because you're so overwhelmed with it. And there is this doubt. And that's where we find John the Baptist this morning. While he might be a great prophet and a crisis of faith, this is what he asks. So Jesus' answer, and again, this isn't a real clear outline this morning. We just sort of work through it and we'll observe these two things. Jesus' answer gives these two things, that there is unimaginable confidence and blessing in eternity. In the midst of doubt, there can be unimaginable confidence and blessing for eternity. And in the midst of all of this, there can be surprising confidence and compassion for the moment. It's not just grit and bear it until you die. He gives compassion and confidence and joy in the moment. So John asks his question. He sends the men to, John, to Jesus. They verbatim ask the question to Jesus. So they ask him, are you the one or should we be looking for another? And we get to verse 21. It says, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Luke records, before Jesus even spoke a word to him, he puts on a display of kingdom power and authority. Are you the one? Boom, in that very hour, he performs all kinds of miracles. And we've seen again and again that's pointing to a taste of the kingdom, the authority that Jesus Christ has over everything, over this physical, over the natural, over the spiritual world. 
And he points to that. He puts on a display of power. And I think we can even learn, make a little application in it right now, is in the midst of it, the immediate thing is quit looking at the difficulty, the despair, that, that despair and disappointment that can kind of cover you like a blanket. You feel suffocated in. And Jesus is kind of pulling that blanket down so you can look past it and see Jesus. And you begin to see just the one disappointment for you and you miss His amazing power and His authority and the way He is working all things for His glory. But if you just will take some time and fix your gaze upon Christ through the means that He gives us to encounter Him, which is the gathering of God's people, which is the Word, which is prayer, which is the table, and you will use those means which He gives you to encounter Him He begins to restore and strengthen your faith. And so before Jesus even says a word, he he just puts on a display. And then Jesus turns to the word to answer them. Verse 22, he says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus here quotes from several different passages in the Old Testament, mainly in Isaiah, and mainly in Isaiah 61, which should be ringing a bell by now. We saw it, that's the text he preached back in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He opened it up and he proclaimed Isaiah 61 to the people and then says it's being fulfilled right now in me. He points John to the scriptures that John would have had, those Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. And he says, look at the word. I have been faithful to fulfill everything in there. Look at Christ. Encounter Him. Go to the word and see that I have been faithful. And that is where he points John. It is interesting If you look at Isaiah 61, I'm going to read the first two verses because it's still probably not the answer John wanted. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, what Jesus is quoting here, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And as Jesus answers with these assurances and these quotations and the prophecy that he has fulfilled, he leaves out the two things that John probably wants to hear. That is, liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's probably the one John wants to experience right now in prison. And secondly, the day of vengeance of our God. We're seeing the Lord's favor. We're seeing His mercy. We're seeing His kindness and compassion but why are the wicked still flourishing why am i in prison and herod isn't where is the fire that i preached john is asking and even john as a forerunner of christ doesn't understand and grasp that for jesus to set the captives free means that he has to go to the cross 
He has to become a curse to release the people from the curse. We've seen a foretaste of it as as he conquers the effects of the curse by healing people, by calming storms. We've seen it even as he stops the procession of death and that death doesn't affect him and make him unclean, but he brings life and cleansing and healing. But it's going to force him to go all the way to the cross. While John might be looking for something physical, Jesus is giving him an answer here that he is fulfilling Scripture. And then verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The one not offended, the one who doesn't examine Christ and consider him unjust, examine Jesus and find it offensive and instead falls away. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Man, what immediate application for us that Jesus, as we look in kind of that disappointment, that I'm disappointed how Jesus is working in my life, and people can reach the point where they decide, I know better, I know a purpose better for me than Jesus does. I can accomplish a better life now than Jesus can accomplish for me. The cross of Christ is what? It's a stumbling block. You look at it, and the world looks at it and thinks, that's That's idiotic. The Pharisees have looked at Jesus all along and have been offended. How dare you call me poor and blind? I know what's going on. I don't need rescue. I'm good to go. You need to help someone else. The message of Jesus is being rejected and is being offensive. If you've evangelized and had encounters in those evangelism moments in any sense... I'm sure you have seen the offense of the gospel. People either roll their eyes at it or it just makes them outright angry and mad. Jesus is saying, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of of what's going on, even when you're disappointed in me, even if you don't understand everything, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me, who in the end says, your will be done, your kingdom come, trust and obey, even in the difficult situations, even when it's not all making sense, that solution is always simple. Ordinary means of grace by which we mean know Him, trust Him, and obey Him. In the midst of it, Jesus offers that promise, bless, amazing blessing for the one who isn't offended. It doesn't ultimately fall away from me. Don't be confused. Don't be surprised with your hardship. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ has abandoned you. It means that He is working in you. He is working in difficult situations and circumstances that if in the midst of it you can, even in the confusion and the pain the sorrow, you can keep your eyes on Christ and lay hold of Him, there is blessing. He's given us Jesus Christ. We, we've laid this out before. But it is through trial, through tribulation, Romans 8 would say, through the peri- peril and famine and sword and nakedness, all the 
the hardships of life in order that you might be an overwhelming conqueror to know the love of God that nothing can separate you from. Don't walk the path of life and decide this isn't working out how I thought it should. I reject what Jesus is doing in my life. I can make a better path of it for myself. I need to look somewhere else. And that's the answer Jesus is giving. And then he gives an amazing word on John. I think it just shows his mercy and compassion. He gives this answer, and now a crowd is gathered, and they must be understanding somewhat what's going on. Jesus responds to John the Baptist. And so, verse 24, when the messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. And he said, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, did, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So he's kind of saying, you know, when you went out to see John the Baptist... Were you going out to see someone who really had no conviction and was just kind of like a reed shaking the wind, blown over, easily swayed, someone in soft clothing? It kind of talks to someone who, you know, just you can't really endure things if they get difficult at all. And so, yes, is that who you went to see? And then he answers it for them. What then, in verse 25, did you go out to see a prophet? And he tells them, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John's just asked, are you the Messiah or should I be looking somewhere else? And Jesus answers with a display of power and turn to the Word and look upon me. Don't be offended by me. You will experience blessing. And then he immediately turns to the crowd and vindicates and validates everything about John. Don't look at him in prison and think, wow, he messed up. Don't look at his situation now. Don't, don't look at circumstances surrounding him for his vindication, for his validation. I'm telling you, there's no one who's been born of a woman who's greater than John, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. John is the man. And what vindication and validation from Jesus Christ, even for someone in a crisis of faith, who has weak faith, who is troubled, that those moments of weakness, those moments of, of mixed motives, those moments where your obedience isn't perfect, Jesus looks on him and validates and vindicates. And I think what we have here is a picture of that final day of judgment. As God will look upon you and your life, run and vindicate and validate you, not based on how strong your faith was compared to the next person. Not based on how the ease of your life or the, the fruit and success of your ministry or how well you were looking at the end. But he looks and he validates based on the righteousness of Christ. Based on the compassion and mercy of Christ. So that John might look now and think, I have it difficult. Uh, it's overwhelming for me. But as he stands at the day of judgment, he will know more kindness and more mercy than he can ever imagine, than he would have ever merited. 
And that's what he's saying. Blessed if you're not offended by me now. Don't, don't abandon the path. Don't abandon the race. Don't abandon trusting and obeying. Because you're going to know amazing and eternal blessing. And the mercy and the kindness that you know now is greater than you can see. And on the day of judgment, when you're declared righteous and welcomed as a son, the mercy and kindness will be better than you could ever imagine. And we have here in this validation, in this vindication of John, a picture that it's not how weak or strong your faith or how great the, the amount of fruit or the success that you know, but it's on the greatness of your Savior. It's the one who you have faith in that vindicates, that validates. And then he adds a little comment there at the end of verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This qualification doesn't diminish his praise of John, but he's simply saying that the kingdom is better than the announcement of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom are more privileged, not like they're better, they merit something better than the other. But the people of the kingdom are more privileged than the one who announces the kingdom. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the new covenant will be inaugurated and you'll experience far greater privilege than even the greatest man born of woman before that, John the Baptist, experienced. There is a privilege this side of the cross, knowing the kingdom of God, living as new covenant members, knowing forgiveness, having the Word written on our heart, coming to the table and refreshing ourselves with the blood of the new covenant as we partake of the juice and the bread and we are reminded again and again of new covenant promises to us. And so he's not like diminishing what he just said to John the Baptist, but encouraging us that yes, John is vindicated and validated because of his Savior, and you know even more privilege than that as New Covenant members living this side of the cross. And he continues here, and we see finally the response of the people, kind of the last surprise. Maybe we're not surprised by now, but verse 29, when all the people heard this, tax collectors too, they declared God to be just. That is, that they declare God was just in what He was saying. He was right to say what He was saying. In other words, they weren't offended by Him, but they said, yes, your way is right. He is just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Man, what a scary thing. At your choice. Yes, God has the right to do what He wants in your life or you reject the purpose of God for you. Not having been baptized by John. So you see, baptism is kind of the dividing mark here. This baptism of John is the dividing mark between those who believe and accept and aren't offended by God and those who reject the purpose of God for them. It's not the ritual of baptism that's doing it. It is the baptism of repentance. It is the heart that is repentant. One who is humble enough to when, hear Jesus when He said, I have come to give sight to the blind, to preach good news to the poor, 
to set captives free that understands that's me. I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm the captive. And in humility, repents and turns to Christ. It's those who have gone through that, gone to John in repentance, that baptism of repentance and what that stood for. But those who declared, no, God's not right about me. I'm not blind, I'm not oppressed, I'm not the poor. His call for me to go down and go through this ritual, I disagree that that's right for me. They're declaring, God's, I reject God's purpose for me. I reject that He's right about me. I'm disappointed in Jesus, who He says He is and what He's doing, and so I reject Him. And the dividing mark is humility and repentance. Once again, humility and repentance needed of the followers of Christ. And then he gives this little illustration to close out the passage. After this response from the Pharisees as they reject the purpose of God for them, he goes on to say, it doesn't matter what I do, you're always going to think you're right in your own eyes. What shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. I think what it's drawing a picture of is if you can picture there's a group of kids playing together and there's like always one kid who's never happy with what's like, you're not playing the right game, you're not playing with the right toys, and they're just kind of have a, a pouty disposition. And so they're, everyone's playing a game and this one kid is pouty and unhappy with it. And so they're all singing, the kid comes by, so they start singing a fun song and they're having a good time and this kid just won't join in, he's being sad. So they want to include the kids, so they instead they switch to like a dirge. Let's all be sad then, and we'll kind of, you know, do this dirge and do something a little more mournful. But even then, it doesn't satisfy the kid. That's not right for them. So Jesus kind of looks at a picture here and sees this of, you know, no matter what they try to do, this one kid is not going to be happy and satisfied with the game that's being played. So then he makes application. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. He's come in this monastic-type lifestyle, and, and again, as that prophet figure in the wilderness, living on locusts and honey primarily, dressed in camel's hair, and no, nothing fancy, nothing ornate, with a backbone of steel as he preaches. And they say, he's a crazy person out there. I, I don't want anything to do with, with him. He, he's crazy. I reject his message. And then the Son of Man, Jesus, comes. And He comes eating and drinking and He's, he's dining with sinners and He's going into the house of, of Gentiles and He's touching the, the casket of someone dead. And they say, look at Him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So He, he comes in compassion and love and reaching out. And again, they reject Him for that. And it doesn't matter because no matter what happens, they've decided what needs to happen. And if John comes one way, Jesus comes one way, you can shape the message however they've rejected it. <laughs> That's such a picture of our culture, isn't it? We do what we can to present a gospel that is clear and that is able to connect with people, but you can't paint it in such a way that it's not offensive to those who want to reject that they need a Savior. If you first don't recognize in humility you have a need and you repent 
understanding that there is nothing in me that can meet this need. I need to look elsewhere. Then it doesn't matter how you present the gospel to someone. It doesn't matter how I present the gospel to you. It doesn't matter what I would read in Scripture. We're going to reject it and find it offensive and find a better way forward. John is saying that's what this generation is like. It doesn't matter how I come to you with the gospel. It doesn't matter who says it. Unless in humility you repent of your sin, come to Christ, you're going to reject it. All right, so we step back now at the end of our passage and we put ourselves in the place of John. And the passage isn't written so we can be like, oh my goodness, John is a bad guy. It's that we might put ourselves in that position and realize in moments of difficulty, when that difficulty grows to despair, when we're disappointed, the things just haven't worked how we thought they should, and we're disappointed that God hasn't worked in like He should. We come to those moments of faith Jesus directs us, look to Christ. Again, put yourself into those ordinary means of gathering with the people of God, of going to the Word, of spending time in prayer. Look to the Word that indeed God has fulfilled the Scripture. He is who He says He is. Trust and obey even when you don't understand it all coming together. And then take hope and confidence that the mercy that you know right now is far greater than what you're realizing. You might feel like it's only a hard hand of God right now, but it is mercy and providence that is getting you to the end so that on that final day, vindication, validation from God, not on how strong your faith is, but on how strong your Savior is. But if you don't repent and you are not humble then you will never go down that path of following after Christ and His way for your life. Once again, over and over again, the kingdom teaches us humility and faith. That is the nature of kingdom citizens. Humility and faith. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for an example from the greatest man of the old covenant. And even in difficulty his faith is weak and doubts arise and in that lord you are incredibly gracious you are merciful and you are compassionate lord when we feel like we're drowning in that difficulty and that despair and that disappointment might we turn our gaze once again upon christ be refreshed with his word to see that he has been true to his promises and where we still can't see that way clearly Lord, help us to trust and obey that we wouldn't be those who are ultimately offended by you and turn away. That we would know the blessing of repentance and humility and obeying you even in difficulty. Lord, we love you. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. ask you just a moment, for a moment longer, to sit here with heads bowed, eyes closed as you respond to the sermon that you heard you respond to the word of God here in Luke chapter 7 and after a moment of individual response worship team will lead us in corporate response